Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today is an exciting day because we have a longtime listener and a fellow podcaster, great podcaster at that, and great writer, Samuel. I think that's how I pronounce it, right? Yeah, be a jetty. Be a jetty. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Welcome. Thank you. And as I mentioned before, this is exciting for me because I'm basically the reply guy of Exhaust Podcast. So this is exciting. Wanted to let the audience know that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're one of our oldest listeners, actually. I don't know. I started started a few months ago. Oh, okay. uh, But I I went through a lot of the catalog and I keep tweeting about it because it's really exciting for me. Oh, well, thank you so much. It means a lot to hear that. You know, it's hard to tell because like John and I often feel like cranks while we're doing it. So it's nice to have a little bit of that. But you wrote, this is also like the unofficial American Affairs podcast. um, (laughs) We get so much uh, content out of it. But uh, you wrote a great piece in the latest issue, I believe, right? I've got it here in front of me called Into the Fairy Castle, The Persistence of Victorian Liberal. And it's a good long read, which is nice. If anybody's making a sweeping sort of synthetic historical case, I always want it to be of appropriate length because otherwise it's like you don't get the good like chiming chords at the end of what's being argued. So I really enjoyed this one. And I wanted to just ask you for our listeners' sake, what is the fairy castle? And I assume, perhaps incorrectly, but I assume that you're also sort of riffing on Mark Fisher's famous essay, as Exiting the Vampire Castle, or no? It's actually funny. I was working on the article and I was sort of building out from Iolanthe. That was the Gilbert and Sullivan opera about the fairy kingdom and their battle with the House of Lords. And it kept coming to my mind when I was dealing with contemporary politics and how everything feels paralyzed, you know, like nothing feels possible, as we know. And everyone seems to be so susceptible to status appeals and being an insider and being accepted in the inner circle. And so I felt this sort of imprisoning feeling and I was trying to work out how to represent that. You know, I always need a metaphor. Like my first commentary article was called the Ikea humans. And that was sort of the the central metaphor that we're like furniture. And then with this one, it was the sense of being enclosed in a fortress, not being able to think beyond the immediate and the obvious and nothing seems to change. And I wrote it partly in grappling with the election of Biden, the fact that Biden was elected and so much weight was put on this idea that we're getting rid of Trump, but then nothing changes, of course, right? Everything is the same as it was a year ago. And I was grappling with that. And then I was thinking what to title it. And I was thinking fairy castle or fairy kingdom or fortress. And, and it came to my mind, I thought someone must have used a title like this already. Someone must have already titled something in the fairy castle or into the fairy castle. And I Googled it. And one of the hits that came up was Mark Fisher's essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, which I didn't know. I had read Capitalist Realism, but I didn't know that article. And I said, that's so funny. It's almost like the same thing in reverse. And so that solidified it for me that it's like this unintentional play on his title. No, I thought that was perfect because it even hits on some of the same things that he brings up. You know, you and I have had brief interactions on this before, and I thought you did a really great job of characterizing it here that one of the things that 
seems to be endemic to the middle class is a type of meritocracy. And you go through Mill's ideas of that, where he's like very explicit about how, you know, basically uh, a testing regime is a sign of moral worth and things like that. And it was fascinating to see because we're sort of locked in our own presentism, how old that idea is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And well, and how much more radical it's been. And the, the sort of digested version of it we get today is, I would say, kind of uh, disingenuously downplayed. But I do think there's this enduring subtext. If you go back to the Victorian sources, there's this subtext that doing better on an academic test makes you a better person, you mm -hmm. know, and makes you more valuable, more honorable. And you know, that is more or less the new ideology, the new measure of worth that we've adopted to make up for the loss of older ideas of honor. You know, and I'm influenced a lot by Peter Berger. One of my favorite essays ever is on the obsolescence of the concept of honor. And, you know, this idea that you can have a sense of self-worth from fulfilling your social duties well. You know, we've basically abandoned that in favor of like, yeah, you know, egghead achieverism, right? And social climbing. Mm -hmm. That's what we have now in its place in that vacuum. And I had a sense of that for a long time. And I feel like there are a lot of people on both the right and the left. And I consider myself politically on the left. You know, that's one of the ironies of all of this. I'm a left progressive, but no left magazine will touch my stuff. And a lot of people, I think, have this sense that there's something kind of more sinister lurking under meritocracy and kind of Ivy Leagueism. And I was so glad when I remembered that Mill essay. I was thinking about Iolanthe and this, the line about the, the Duke's exalted station will be attained by competitive examination. And I thought, didn't someone write in a famous essay about judging everything by a competitive examination? Who was that? And again, through Google, I remembered it was Mill and there's that essay that was like his first published essay before he was famous. And he just lays it out. He just says, your moral worth is judged by how you do on a standardized academic test. And that people who achieve better academically are more valuable than others. And I was like, he's saying the quiet part out loud. <laughs> there it is, right? And it, I just remember it being slipped into a book of, of mill essays from that I encountered in college, but it was never discussed. And I just was so excited to be able to find it and excavate it. Yeah, I mean, I thought it landed like very perfectly as you I think you brought it up to me when my piece in TAC came out about sort of the bureaucratic culture of emotivism. I think I called it like uh, sort of an overwrought piece, but it was called like political life in the lottery of Babylon. And, you know, I was so glad that the meritocracy featured so much in this because the, that seems to be so much of how our moral world is constructed. And I think like really captures the, what is the show called Borgen that you opened the piece yeah. with? So I was wondering if you could explain Borgen and like why you picked it as the opening to this and like what it helps you lay out in the piece so that we can sort of catch listeners up. Yes, that's a good question. I sort of have a love-hate relationship with this television show called Borgen, which was produced in Denmark in the early 2010s. 
And it's, you know, it's obscure to a lot of people, but it actually was remarkably successful and gained millions of viewers abroad outside Denmark, quite to the surprise of the people who made it. And it's, it centers on this sort of strong, unflappable female politician, Birgitta Nyborg, who is the head of the moderate party, a fictitious party with sort of no agenda, right? <laughs> that just inhabits the middle of Dana. Crucially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It has no particular principles or vision. It's just, the, it's just a placeholder, right? And there she is, very smart and poised and accomplished, and she manages to sort of thread the needle and form a coalition and become prime minister. And then you see her having to manage this coalition, and that's most of the first season. And then other things come up in later seasons, like the Iraq war. And actually it was the second season episode that deals with Afghanistan, I should say, not Iraq, but Afghanistan, that really frustrated me and made me, forced me to reckon with the fact that this show, as enjoyable as it is, it's neoliberal pablum. You know, it's purely politics as a stage for self-formation. Look at how smart she is. And with no hint as to how any of these policies or decisions actually affect anyone outside of parliament, right? The country of Denmark is like absent from the stage. And I realized that this was so representative of how people consume politics now, not just political entertainment, but even what is supposed to be politics itself is no longer politics. It's just, it's aspirational entertainment and it's persona construction. And it's, and I realized this was important and useful to me because a lot of my aggravation has just been trying to talk to people about policy, trying to talk to people about how should we provision healthcare or how should we produce energy, right? And whatever the issue is, it always just comes back to persona and personality. And it's like you're hitting a wall. There is no, and no motion is possible. And I realized that Borgen kind of captured this mentality really well. And I argue that largely why it was so successful abroad is that it captures this kind of international, transatlantic, overeducated middle-class mentality that has a lot of power, that you know, really holds its grip on the minds of so many people in the US and basically the whole Anglosphere, Western Europe, and so on and so on. So I used it as this entry point and I didn't realize I was gonna do that. I started thinking about Iolanthe and trying to pack, unpack what's there in the play. And then I kept thinking about Borgen and I realized I have to start with Borgen. <laughs> and I told my friend, Michael, I was like, oh my God, I think I have to begin with and then leave back and talk about the Victorians and Gilbert and Sullivan and so on. I think that there's there's sort of the aspirational quality of it. There's also the like, I kept thinking about House of Cards Ooh. as I was, which I didn't finish, you know, but I kept thinking about it because I think it's sort of the, the opposite side of the same coin. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. like America doesn't really, at least from the seasons that I saw, like appear at all in that show's narrative. Really politics is like, cynical maneuverings and like mm -hmm. what you watch is people morally degrade themselves to hold on to power and you're like titillated by that right right well they i think they're frighteningly similar because right. 
in Borgen, there's always an excuse. You know, so much of Borgen is about self-absolution and rationalization that Birgitta always has to do these terrible things like host a repressive dictator from um, another country or, you know, cut people's retirement benefits, etc. But there's always a rationale for why she's doing the mature, pragmatic thing. Right. It's this constant mobilization of the language, the therapeutic language of maturity and adulthood to justify doing unethical things. Right. Whereas I would say House of Cards just kind of drops that pretense and says he's horrible. And isn't that fun? And isn't it fun to live out these sort of tyrannical fantasies of of power uh, without compunction, without guilt? Right. It's really I think it's playing to the same part of the brain, even though it's presented differently. Right. It's it's sort of like the, you know, John and I did that uh, episode on Goodfellas. And Goodfellas has, is looking at some of the same things. And then mm-hmm. it's just like, yeah, I'm going to fuck you over and you're going to like it. Like, I'm the asshole and that's delightful. Yeah, I mentioned this in the IKEA Humans, how people like these fantasies like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad is another perfect example. Yeah. It's all about kind of projecting yourself into this fantasy of uh, breaking all ethical rules and just asserting your power, being completely selfish, right? I did it for me. And people are attracted to these anti-heroes, right? But like, there's kind of no distinction really between the heroes and the anti-heroes. It's all the same fantasy. It's just how much you dress it up with some rationale. Right. And like even being the anti-hero is sort of like a rationale. Right. Like at some point for Walter White, yeah, you didn't really have to like do this in the way that you did it. Like this was really your own dysfunction that brought you here. And like by the end of The Sopranos, it's like, you know, Tony Soprano is like totally ruined his own life. He's like obviously a psychopath. He can't make any of that work. The same thing happens to the main character in Goodfellas. A lot of the like I did it my way stuff is really just like, uh, window dressing on malfunction in the same way that sort of the maturity and psychological development and like pragmatism veneer of Mm -hmm. centrist amoralism is just also a different type of excuse making and aestheticizing basically a total famine of moral depth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to me, I mean, you know, I love McIntyre too. And I I know you love McIntyre and we're all kind of little children of McIntyre to some degree, but mm-hmm. I, I have to keep returning to this thought that we're in a kind of desert where nobody knows what to do with themselves, whether they're mm-hmm. talented or not, whether they come from wealth or not. Nobody has a notion of what is a good life? How am I supposed to be directing my life? What am I supposed to be aspiring to? Right. And we're all just sort of in this sandlot where we can grasp at this sort of power or this sort of status and insiderhood but we're we're just kind of undeveloped right <laughs> we're all like yeah. undeveloped people uncultivated no for sure i'm i mean it's interesting to have this conversation with you after the met gala which uh, when we were recording was last night right aoc shows up with the tax the rich thing i guess she was uh, riffing off of hassan piker and his make the rich pay t-shirt as he bought a two million dollar house i mean whatever good for him he got his back i guess um, i'm not like here to moralize on that just to say that towards the end of the essay, you start to gesture towards a return, even in America, towards a type of like royal culture, 
or an aristocratic culture, yeah. but not aristocratic in the sense of filial duty and stuff like that. Like whatever the merits of the aristocratic monarchical regime were, those aren't part of it. Like really it's about the, like we're not worthy slang and the total bowing to whomever is the most ostentatious at spectacular events such as these. Yeah, it's courtierism, right? Yeah. It's this very shallow courtierism. It's this very shallow social climberism. And people love titles. And in America, it's large, it's largely degrees, right? Academic degrees that fill in for titles. But it's also connections of I worked for this congressperson, I worked for this nonprofit. People take pictures of themselves with members of Congress. Like that was one of the earliest things in my life where I said, this is weird. This is gross. Why are you <laughs> posing for pictures with a senator? Like it's, that doesn't make you matter. That's not an accomplishment just to be in proximity to someone of power. But that kind of courtierism, I think, is very strong right now. It's sort of one of the few things that people latch onto that make them, that give them some measure of accomplishment or a direction in life. And to me, I mean, I've had a little, everyone's had a little journey with AOC, right? And the squad. And for me, I was very pleased to see her get elected. I thought it was wonderful. And I supported her message and her platform, you know, not 100%, never 100%, but in large part. You never get 100%, you know? No, you you're willing yeah, to be yeah. like, and, you know, it's also, it feels like it was like 20 years ago, but I think she gets elected in like 2017. Right. Uh, 18, 18. 18. Yeah. And a lot yeah. of, a lot of things feel like they're cresting, right? Like yeah. that's when Chapo is getting really big. That's <laughs> when you can say Bernie would have won and it makes the world make sense. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> the Bernie movement is a whole big complicated story too, insofar as there was a movement, but with AOC, you know, I thought this is really good. This is a huge step forward. There's a lot of possibility here. Most of that possibility was not realized, you know, which is to be expected with most politicians. They're gonna let you down and they respond to incentives. You know, they respond to who's around them and who has influence over them and who can give them things that they want. And if, you know, the grassroots left has no power over them, they're not going to do what you want. That's so, you know, it was a bit of a letdown, but what was really revealing was how different people reacted so differently to that occurrence and to that disappointment. And many people's impulse was to circle the wagons and defend AOC and the other politicians like her and to insult those who criticized them. And I was like, wait, what's going on here? Why do you feel like it's your duty to defend someone who is way more powerful than you and who has put themselves forward as a certain kind of politician and is not following through? And it, to me, that was another big mask off. It was another very revealing moment that even if you take on the sort of style and trappings of I'm a leftist or I'm a populist or I'm anti-establishment, you very easily just create your own establishment and you create your own court, your own aristocrats to kiss up to. You know, this it's sort of an unavoidable pattern. And I think we're that's that's kind of the trap that we're in. At least 
people from my sort of social milieu, right? People who have gone to Ivy League schools, I confess it, I did, and come from very educated backgrounds. It's like a, a mental clockwork you can't break out of. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the same thing, obviously. And I mean, it really puts a whole new spin on the famous Roger Stone quip that politics is show business for ugly people. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like it really does feel like show business. And I mean, I think fandom culture has had a, had a huge impact on this as well. Like the fact that most likely a lot of the people who do the same advertising for like the Marvel Cinematic Universe also work on presidential campaigns. Oh, of course. Well, the po politics today is just a spillover from Madison Avenue. Yeah, it's all it's all been taken. It's just an adjunct to the advertising industry. Mm -hmm. And it's all about creating fandom, creating identities through fandoms. And that one of the few tweets I've made that I was happy with is when I, I just one day, I just put the words together and I tweeted, all that is solid melts into fandom. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the story of the 21st century, right? That you don't have a sense of purpose and, and that you don't have a, you don't create communities the way it's usually happened in the past, which is the community is an epiphenomenon, a result of joining together with others for some purpose, right? To work towards some goal. Now it's community for its own sake, for its own, just for the feeling of being in a community mm -hmm. and you shape it through taste and consumption, right? Under the guidance of the advertising industry. And yeah, politics is just, uh, it's just a creature of that now. Right. I mean, yeah. So I think it's like Madison Avenue and Hollywood are the Scylla and Charybdis of politics today. Like you have, you're navigating through these things and they're just like picking you off as you go through the stream, you know, like eat your ship alive. I think that's very much how it feels. I mean, coming from the background you come from and being a left progressive as you've identified yourself how has your thinking about history politics and culture changed over the last say 10 20 years well i mean more or less it's been a gradual self-radicalization <laughs> you know, i feel like we're all sort of self-radicalizing out here in our different directions but you know i think in some ways, I became more left and I supported Bernie Sanders. And mm -hmm. he, of course, is imperfect in all of his ways, too. Everyone is flawed. But I think that at the same time that I became more leftist, I also had a strong and maybe deepening appreciation of the past, of the value of tradition, of, you know, you name it, the classics, the religious traditions. And I became, at the same time that I abhor the incredible inequality and the concentration of wealth and the materialism, I also, you know, I am disappointed by the shallowness, the lack of a sense of history that mm -hmm. is prevalent across the board, including the different factions of the left, you know, the yeah. left in quotation marks. Right. It's a problem everywhere. It's not just the left. It's totally pervasive. And... Sometimes people react to that and, and move to the right, 
you know, because of course we have this single one dimensional axis of all politics, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone has to be slotted in along this one left to right axis. So some people go to the right and they kind of fetishize those things and make that their persona and their consumer mm -hmm. group. Look, I like Gothic architecture. Look, I read Aristotle or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's, it continues to be generally very shallow and ahistorical, right? No understanding of how people operate. And I also came to, I've come to grips with kind of, you could say human psychology, but just the really flawed, just deeply flawed nature of people and the human tendencies and how complicated and strange they are. You know, and I always think of the crooked timber of humanity, you mm -hmm. know, and again, there's no recognition, I think, of that in terms of left politics. It's, there's a lot of kind of easy utopianism and this assumption that everyone is essentially good, right? This is, I think, a very deep liberal notion that has taken over this, the whole left is that we're all basically essentially good and we have good impulses. And if there's, we do anything bad, it's because society corrupted us. It's because the, you know, racism or heterosexism or something, some ism has- Nobody's a moral agent, you know. Nobody's a moral agent. It's all these like, you know, and the pandemic plays, I think, to this tendency so well, this idea that there's sort of a toxin mm -hmm. out there in the world that infects our pure good essence. And we just have to fight those bad ideologies from the outside, as opposed to reckoning with the fact that you are a very flawed, weak, corruptible being. And that's just part of the human condition. And you're going to have to build up your character, right? You're going to have to cultivate your strengths of character to deal with that reality, right? Mm -hmm. There's no appreciation of character, self-development. So basically that, that's where I am now is like, this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people's bizarre mental tics. I'm seeing their dishonesty, the lack of integrity. And I'm trying to show what I see. I'm trying to reflect back what I see. And some people are interested and some people hear it, but no lefty outlet will publish me. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They won't touch it. Only Julius at American Affairs. You know, I sent him my stuff and he said, great. And didn't make me cut a line. He yeah. made me it, things. Yeah, that's been my experience with Micah Battlecroft over at TAC as well. You know, it's like, I mean, he'll do some edits to like make things like better or cleaner, especially if I'm writing a shorter piece, you know, he'll mm -hmm. smooth it out a little bit, but it's never, you know, I remember writing for a sort of like lefty art publication a few years ago and I had a whole critique of victimhood culture in there mm -hmm. and that like it's opposite side of the coin was sort of what I call the culture of the dark night which is the sort of like cruel cynicism of the Christopher Nolan films that seemed very much part of like America and the Iraq war to me, you know? Mm. And they were just like, yeah, you're going to have to cut this because this isn't a real thing. <laughs> yeah. And I was kind of like, Oh, and they let me know that while I was driving to work and could not access the Google doc. And they were like, either you get the $250 or we're not publishing this. It's amazing. The, the range of what you're allowed to express really is so constricted. It's true. There is such fear and such 
narrowness of just the thoughts and criticisms you're allowed to express. It's, I, it really is amazing. And I feel like I'm sure I make mistakes. I'm, I'm sure I've said things in my articles that a lot of people disagree with. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It's, I'm the author. I can make these mistakes. This is my decision. Why do editors feel like they have to control the conversation? It really, it's bewildering. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think so much of it has to do with like, you know, my limited experience in like freelance writing and stuff like that has shown me that for certain publications, an editor is really like a brand manager Yeah, for a lot of these publications. And like, that's what they're doing. You're writing this piece for whatever magazine and especially if it's a political magazine, it is going to conform to this orthodoxy by and large. Yeah, and it has to cater to the tastes of our fan group, right? That was right. feedback I often got. was like, well, it's not our style. I'm like, what do you mean your style? It's, I wrote it. It's my style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. The venue style. Right. And I, and I think that there is sort of a larger conformity in the pattern. You know, it's sort of like the same people who want to tell you that the New Yorker unionizing is a great win for labor at large. <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's like, I don't, okay. You know, big trouble at Condé Nast, I guess. But how about yeah, today, Condé Nast, tomorrow, the world. Yeah. Will that union then make the New York Times report on the miners' strike in Alabama, which they're not doing? Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's sort of the problem there. But I wanted to come back to this interesting thing that you bring up, and it's sort of the toggling within middle-class consciousness, where there is sort of either a conservative or a reactionary element to it where it can't fully, where it's like protecting its own interests within the system as it exists, right? And at the same time, it has this penchant for like strident critique of the very same system. And it can't really seem to settle on both of those. So I was wondering if you could talk with me a little bit about how you noticed that and sort of the trajectory as you saw that while you were working on the piece. Yeah, that's, it's interesting. That sort of point struck me a lot all through the 2010s and on up to 2020 when I started thinking about this piece. And I included it and I actually considered that maybe I should take it out, that maybe it would come across too much as kind of settling scores. But my friends who read it said, no, keep it in. But there's this wonderful inconsistency where you can always say, oh, I believe in universal health care and I believe in ending the wars and I support you 100%, but we can never do it, right? There's always a justification for why it can't be done. And there's this, it's a logical non sequitur where you switch, the rhetorical device is to switch from, to switch back and forth between discussing the merit of a policy and discussing how easy it will be to get it enacted. And as long as you're always willing to jump between those two things, you can always avoid actually, you can always avoid actual political debate, which, you know, if you think of politics, this is part of what I mean when I say there is no politics today in America, is that politics in the Aristotle sense is people debating how to live well in a society. 
and how to order their society, how to dispose of resources, how to make laws to, to, in order to foster flourishing, right? And to live well together. But you can always shut that down by saying, oh, but it's unrealistic, but it's not practical, right? And by doing so, you're switching roles. You're no longer a citizen engaged in political debate. You switch to being an armchair pundit who simply is commenting from the outside on the dynamics of politics, right? Everybody makes themselves a little consultant, right? Everyone talks and acts like I am the campaign manager for such and such congressional candidate rather than I'm a citizen, right? In a way, being a citizen, it's a more vulnerable position. It's saying, I don't have ultimate power, but I have something at stake here and I want to, to put my voice into this debate, right? And that you're kind of admitting the, the limitations of your own power when you try to speak and enter into discussion as a citizen. Whereas if you always think, well, I'm so smart and I'm so informed that instead I can be an armchair pundit, you relieve yourself of that responsibility and that vulnerability. So this is the way conversations are always shut down. And it, at some point I realized, okay, it's, it's not enough just to say, well, people who say, I support Medicare for all, but it's just not feasible. We're just not gonna be able to pass it. It's not enough to say those people are arguing in bad faith because there's something more to it than that. They're sort of manipulating their role in the conversation in order to basically, yeah, shut down politics. And the result is paralysis, right? The result is that you can always, the educated upper middle class can always shut down any reform while claiming that they support it. <laughs> you get to have this mm -hmm. paradoxical position. Right. You get to have it both ways. I mean. <sighs> yeah, I just tweeted, I think earlier today, I tweeted, let them have their cake and eat it too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very much that. Well, I also think that there's an interesting thing going on where people have a difficult time. So this happens a lot in like my nuclear advocacy, right? We're always talking about like, what was the secret sauce of the mid 20th century that let all of these big state sponsored build outs happen? And do we even have it anymore? Right? So just a really concrete question about political institutions and industrial capacity, right? That sort of questioning, I feel like gets bent or abused or turned into a, a like a cynical realism of defeatism right mm. because like it could be that we don't have the secret sauce anymore right and we can't get it and we'll just have to face the facts on that and we'll come up with our own solutions however that's very different than being like well i support this but it's never going to happen and actually i'm going to continue to vote for and support the people who guarantee that it will never happen. Right, right. And I've rationalized that in such a right. way that I should get credit for supporting it even as I prevent it from happening. But do you get accused of nostalgia? Because that's something I hear here and there that, oh. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess so. Like, it's a little bit different. If you're like, man, things were the best in the mid 20th century of America, you know, there are plenty of things you could point to that like weren't so great about that. I think because it's within the focus of a specific industrial project, that's a little bit 
less okay. nostalgic. And it's more about yeah. like trying to figure out what your policy formation is going to be. You know, do yeah. I have nostalgic feelings when I learn about like the early successes of the Atomic Energy Commission? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, so in that way, I, I could even accuse myself of a type of nostalgia. But I would almost have like a Lashian response to that, where I would say, like, what's so nostalgic about being honest about prior great? Yeah, exactly. And valuing that and wanting to emulate that, right? There's a difference between saying, if only I could go back and saying, I would like to do what my forefathers did. Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with aspiring to mm -hmm. an accomplishment? And there, I think the nostalgia accusation is another very revealing rhetorical ploy where you can, it, it, you can always reduce the other person's argument to just emotion. Well, you're just an immature, emotional person. You're not being rational, which is classic. But also, I constantly try to get across to people that history is not unidirectional. There's nothing that says everything always... Is there some metaphysical law of the universe that everything has to always be getting better? Right. Is there a metaphysical law of the universe that everything has to always be getting worse? I don't see how, where that would come from. I think that people change, societies change, and some things might get better and some things get worse. And saying that something, there's something that used to operate better in the past that we should try to recover is not therefore to make some claim that everything was perfect you know, but that's the easy accusation to leap to, right? Mm -hmm. But don't you know everything that was bad that was going on in the 50s? Yeah, duh, of course. But clearly, there has been some kind of social breakdown from the 1970s to today. And it's not a simple, straightforward thing. It involves many different institutions. Mm -hmm. But there's been a loss of confidence. There's been a loss of social cohesion. You know, and it's all so clear and, and it goes hand in hand with the greater concentration of wealth and the uh, impoverishment, really the impoverishment of the working class and the middle class. And yeah, something of the fabric of society has really changed. And there are, you know, centrist liberals have a whole quiver of rhetorical tools that they'll use to distract you from that and say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. But clearly there were, you know, there, it was possible to mobilize to do things like say, build the interstate highway system or any number of other things that we just cannot do today. We have so balkanized ourselves. We've become so obsessed with shiny objects. We can't function in the same way that we did between the 1930s and the early 1970s. And again, that's not to say that's a paradise. This is just a fact that I think any open-minded observer has to see, but we're always being distracted and directed away from seeing it. Right. You know, so here's a question I have for you. How do you square that with your own propensities for, as you say, a left progressivism? Because you're saying a lot of things that I feel and think that I agree with, that I grapple with all the time. And I have a deep ambivalence now about the idea 
of progress. And I'm appealing to you for how you square this so that I <laughs> might get clarity on my own dysfunctions here. Well, you know, I really appreciated reading Aristotle's politics. And to me, it was sort of freeing because I think Aristotle just lays out a way of thinking about law and power and the polis that made sense for him at that time. And that we have now really suppressed. It's like so alien to us that we don't even understand it easily. But just the assumption, the understanding that people are social beings, right? That, and, and that man is a political animal, a zoon politikon, in the sense that he naturally lives in a polis with other people and cooperates and engages in rituals and customs with them, shares a language with them. And that's just part of human life. And that as a necessary dimension of that, you have to engage in an ongoing conversation about how to live, about what practices to continue, what to change, what to end, uh, decisions about war and peace, decisions about public property, public goods. And it doesn't, you don't have to assume that history is linear or that everything is inevitably progressive, right? Mm -hmm. Although I might say I'm, I'm progressive only in the sense that I support certain policy ideas right. that currently fit under that label. I'm not progressive in the sense that I don't have some assumption that I know where history is going. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's that's a basic core thing is just have the humility to say, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know where things are going to go. I just believe that we should have a, a sense of belonging together, that we, you know, we live in a society, right? That's kind of what it comes down to. I, there is such a thing as society, and that you will be happier and healthier and live a more flourishing life if you see yourself embedded in a society and you're invested in its future, its destiny, its well-being, right? So I would say personally, when people ask me, I, I don't consider myself a liberal, mm -hmm. right? It should be pretty clear from everything I've written is like, I'm constantly <laughs> trying to draw this distinction. I do not subscribe to the assumptions of liberalism. And part of it is the individualism, you know, the mm -hmm. idea that society is just this instrumental thing created by a contract among individuals and that it's ultimately just individual flourishing that matters. You know, I no longer believe that if I ever did, maybe when I was 16, I no longer see things that way. And I would say I'm a civic humanist. That's my point of view. I'm not a liberal humanist. I'm a leftist just in the sense that's where my opinions are about policy issues. Right. But I'm not on the liberal humanist scale. Yeah. No, I think that that makes sense to me. And I think that's, well, humanism is like a whole nother debate, but I certainly vibe with what you're setting out there. So I wanted to ask you one more question that I think was my, the thing that like bothered me as I was reading the piece, because anytime I read something good, like I get bothered you know, by something that might not even be in the piece, but it's making me think about. And I was wondering about the status of critique within the fairy castle, because it seems to, in that toggling between 
reactionary and like progressive instincts thrive off of critique to create this deadlock. And I wondered if you agreed with that or if you saw it another way, or if perhaps you're the magical person that has the explanation for how we get out of this. Yeah, I don't think I have the magical explanation, but Fuck. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It involves fairies. <laughs> There's, you know, I sort of seized on the figure of W.S. Gilbert as this interesting illustration of someone who I think was really torn, who is a really internally torn individual, a very troubled person. And his plays sort of show it to a degree. You know, Gilbert and Sullivan are the, I think they're the triumph of irony. And the plays are so beautiful. I just love Gilbert Sullivan. I love Borgen too, it's a good show. But there's this amazing magic to Gilbert and Sullivan where it's this just biting, sarcastic, absurdist satire of Victorian Britain. And it's the sort of jokes, it's absurdist jokes about, oh, you know, he's, he's half fairy, half mortal, but he's only fairy from the waist up. And so who can he marry? It's, it's just silly, you know, con contrivances. And it's the sort of jokes that can only work if you completely commit to them, right? Mm -hmm. You totally commit to them and follow through. And Sullivan was this composer who wrote just beautiful, sincere music. You wanted a march, he wrote a march. You wanted a love song, he wrote a love song. And it's like he didn't get the joke, right? It's like he didn't, he just totally straightforwardly wrote the sort of music that fit the scene as if you were totally serious about it. And that's why the irony works. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there's, there is this sort of function where you can see a radicalism in Gilbert and Sullivan, especially in Iolanthe, but in other places too, in the Mikado. But it's very easily folded into the, the Victorian world. You know, the upper class went, the queen went to the gondoliers. She, Victoria herself yeah. <laughs> went to the opening of the show. And Margaret Thatcher said that she loved Gilbert and Sullivan. And it almost became like, just middle brow, right? British middle browism by the 1970s, right? And so there's a way that you can see critiques and nudge them, right? And that you can pull on people's strings, right? The, the, if you want to say the establishment, but really, you know, the, the government in Great Britain did this to Gilbert. They sort of dangled a carrot and stick of are you going to get a knighthood like Arthur Sullivan? Are you going to be really accepted? And it completely worked in domesticating him and basically reframing all of his work as just a sort of good-natured teasing, like you'd see when you roast a celebrity, right? Mm -hmm. Everything, satire seems to inevitably devolve into a sort of harmless roast. And, you know, I think that the plays are enduringly great and wonderful, but today we don't even have that. Like SNL is like unwatchable, you know, it's all just pablum. It's all toothless. Oh, it's crazy how it, it went from even like mild critique of political establishment to basically being like, like a weird Pravda adjacent quote unquote comedy show.
Yeah, unironic praise, unironic but, praise of rich and powerful. Like the the shift after, like I had this memory of when a news article came out of like every like MMA and like self defense gym in New York was just like totally overwhelmed with new female clients after the inauguration, as if right wingers were actually going to like en masse go on like a rape and pillage tour of New England. <laughs> like after Trump got inaugurated, just like totally wild shit. And everybody was just like, yeah, that's happening. We're all scared. Like, that's correct. That's just the way that is. And the whole shift in discourse dropped any sort of pretense of irony. And it seems like irony is impossible now, even in the way that I think like the Daily Show or the Colbert Report was more in line with Gilbert and Sullivan. Instead, I see a lot of the irony that seems to be locked into this problem coming out of the social democratic left. Yeah, look at the number they did on Stephen Colbert. I mean, I don't know what he ever thought in his heart. I don't know like what his real disposition is, but just looking at his work, they really did a number on him. They shut him down so good. And mm -hmm. yeah, it all, again, it goes back to this sense that everything is, seems to be kind of trapped. Like they've locked themselves in their own fortress and there's no thinking outside of this very small box. And I, to me, what I keep thinking is the, I think the way out is to always see on substance is to always say, it doesn't matter what dress this person is wearing. It doesn't matter what party they went to. All we need to think about is what laws and policies and institutions do they support? Mm -hmm. That's it. Don't get distracted. They'll always distract you. They'll always distract you with some shit about, well, this slogan was written on such and such guy's tux. It doesn't matter. Like you need to be talking about what are the leading causes of death in America, right? Mm -hmm. Why is the life expectancy declining for several years in a row? Mm -hmm. And it's not because of SNL and it's not because of, it's not because of Donald Trump, right? And it's not because of MMA. It's not any of these things. It's not because of Joe Rogan. It's <laughs> because of suicides and overdoses. It's because people are desperate. They're broke. They're bankrupt. They can't go to the doctor and they're depressed and they're killing themselves, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Right. That's what's happening in America. And if what you're worried about isn't directly affecting that, if it's not about what do you do with someone who's alone, depressed, bankrupt, then it doesn't matter. And I have, you know, and I'm guilty, right? Because I obsess over things like Borgen. And I, I know I'm very ambivalent when I write things like this, because I know, and I don't want to give anyone the impression that Borgen has like a significant effect on American life. It's not, it's arcane, right? It's a, mm -hmm. a show that- It's a niche, yeah. Watch. It's niche. I'm only, I'm very careful to only talk about these things as somehow illustrating something, right? But I'm never gonna fight with someone about a TV show. I don't, you know, and I don't, oh my God, this show is normalizing such and such, or this show is sexualizing such and such. Don't care. Anything with an I-Z-E on the end, don't care, doesn't matter, get out of my face, right? But at the same time, I feel this kind of compulsion to use these cultural artifacts to try to expose and illustrate what I'm talking about.
right? They're set pieces. But I think that we have to really reorient ourselves and be careful and be conscious about when we're being drawn into symbolic cultural fights about things that don't matter. And when we're being, when our desire for recognition and attention and belonging is being played on, right? Mm -hmm. We're so vulnerable to that. And we have to say, you know, look, I ran for office. You may not know this. I don't know. I did not know that. I was a candidate for office last year. It's weird. It's real weird, but it was a good experience in some ways. And I'm glad that I did it, but I had to constantly say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I get the glory and the fun and the fame of being a politician. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. It does, that is not the point. That's not why I'm doing it. And you are so easily swayed and seduced by those rewards, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's all I can say. I don't have any magical solution. I just say, keep your eye on the ball. You know, keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the things that really substantively matter to people's lives. Yeah, I would say it's good to be abreast of the cultural conditions in America and how things are phrased, because that is how the status quo will be laundered. And if you don't have a grasp on that, you'll likely get outfoxed. At the same time, you have to resist capture, right? And capture is to basically let them wag the dog. Yeah, yeah. It's You've got to recognize and be ready for how they're going to try to color your thinking. So mm-hmm. you can't just pretend like that's not there. You can't pretend like it's not there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, this was absolutely delightful. I'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Emmett. Thank you for the show and thank you for asking me. All right. Well, everybody, stay safe out there and we'll see you next time.